Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the Federal Insurance Exchange Healthcare.gov is gaining a new leader. Kevin Cunahan, CEO of Access Health Connecticut, Connecticut's successful health exchange, and a recent guest on the show is going to be running the federal exchange, which was fraught with so many problems during its opening run and caused the administration no small amount of headache and sleepless nights. Well, Kevin did a terrific job of rolling out the exchange here in our home state, Mark, and he's had significant experience in the exchange arena before coming to Connecticut. He helped Massachusetts when that state opted for universal coverage, really brings a breadth of experience to the federal post and a proven record of being able to work well with people across all sorts of interests. So I think healthcare.gov is in very capable hands, and congratulations to Kevin. Absolutely. Uh, Kevin's a great communicator, and the administration needs that because it wants to make certain that it doesn't repeat the problem plague initial rollout. And with one of the top executives from the insurance industry also in the mix, I think we'll see a system that works more smoothly and efficiently once open enrollment begins on November 15th, just two months away. You know, Mark, we're also seeing some maybe a new tune from the insurance side of things. United Healthcare, which only participated in the exchange in four states this year, is expanding to 24 states next year. The market does seem to be responding to this new online insurance marketplace. And this is no surprise. More states are finding creative ways to expand coverage for low-income residents. The state of Pennsylvania, which had held out on implementing the Affordable Care Act, is using federal funds to help some half million residents purchase private insurance. So it is a different approach to the expansion of Medicaid, and the Department of Health and Human Services approved their approach to expand this coverage. While a number of the nation's Republican governors categorically refused to expand Medicaid on principle, Pennsylvania's Tom Corbett has become the ninth GOP state leader to buck that trend. Perhaps seeing the wisdom of utilizing federal dollars to help more of the state's low-income residents gain access to coverage and health care, which also supports his health care institutions in that state. We also have a significant milestone to note, Margaret. The nation's second largest pharmacy chain is no longer in the business of peddling tobacco. CVS has kicked the habit and is no longer selling cigarette products, the single leading cause of preventable death in this country, with roughly half a million tobacco-related deaths every year. CVS is uh, rebranding itself as CVS Health. It's a major step in the right direction. I agree, Mark. And speaking of preventable deaths, the international organization Save the Children is tasked with the mission of helping to ensure the safety of the world's children. CEO Carolyn Miles is joining us today to to speak about some of the latest challenges they're facing with children suffering so greatly in war zones and refugee crises all around the world, a very daunting task. Lori Robertson stops by to uncover another false claim about health policy spoken in the public arena. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Caroline Miles of Save the Children in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. 
There's a dramatic shift underway in the pharmacy world. CVS Caremark, the nation's second largest pharmacy chain, is officially out of the business of selling cigarettes to customers. In place now at the 7,700 CVS locations where cigarettes used to be stored, signs urging customers to quit smoking. CVS, which is increasingly going to be a consumer hub for health care customers, is rebranding its name to CVS Health and will promote smoking cessation programs to its customers. Smoking remains the leading cause of preventable deaths, killing roughly half a million people in this country every year. And e-cigarettes have found a niche market, which has the World Health Organization concerned. The WHO issued strict guideline recommendations governing the sale and use of e-cigarettes, which has quickly become a $3 billion a year, largely unregulated industry. Contrary to industry advertising, a new report by the WHO finds that electronic cigarettes and other electronic nicotine delivery systems pose significant public health hazards because of toxins emitted from the devices. The agency recommends countries adopt e-cigarette rules to prevent misleading marketing of the products and to educate the public about the potential health risks involved. World Health Organization is also sounding the alarm on Ebola, the deadly infectious disease rapidly spreading through certain communities and countries in West Africa, warning the crisis is worsening and will require more global participation in providing medical support to contain the outbreak. No end in sight. A federal judge in Austin, Texas, has blocked a stringent new rule that would have forced more than half of the state's remaining abortion clinics to close. The latest in a string of court decisions that have at least temporarily kept abortion clinics across the South from being shuttered. The Texas rule requiring all abortion clinics to meet the building, equipment and staffing standards of hospital-style surgery centers had been set to take effect in recent days. A federal judge has temporarily blocked a Louisiana law that would have required abortion providers to secure admitting privileges at a local hospital. The law, signed by Governor Bobby Jindal in June, would have gone into effect this week. And music and the mind. A recent Northwestern University study showed at-risk children exposed to free music lessons for at least a two-year period of time actually saw improvements to the parts of their brains dealing with language comprehension and learning. The first study to show the biological impact on the brain of music training in early learners. The study showed a link between the exposure to that early training over a protracted period of time and improved academic performance abilities as well. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Carolyn Miles, president and chief executive officer of Save the Children, uh, an independent nonprofit international organization dedicated to meeting the needs of over 143 million children in 120 countries, including the U.S. Ms. Miles first joined Save the Children in 1998, serving as chief operating officer before becoming CEO. Prior to that, Ms. Miles worked as an entrepreneur and liaison for the American Express in Asia, where she first developed an interest in addressing the welfare of the world's underserved children. She serves on numerous international boards and the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, where she also earned her MBA. Carolyn, welcome back to Conversation in Healthcare. Thank you, Mark. 
you're uh, on the show a couple of years ago and uh, speaking uh, to some of the more pressing issues undermining the quality of life for children around the globe. And your mission has only grown in scope over the past couple of years. And as an organization that serves the needs of close to 150 million children around the globe, where do you see the biggest threats to childhood well-being in 2014? And how does your mission at Save the Children seek to address these uh, challenges? Well, the world hasn't gotten uh, any easier for kids since we last spoke, Mark. Um, But, you know, Save the Children really works on making sure that every child has a healthy start, that they have an opportunity to learn and that they're protected from harm. So right now there are a lot of difficult things going on, uh, whether you're talking about the Ebola virus in West Africa or kids that are displaced by war in places like Syria and Iraq, um, or kids right here in the U.S. on our borders that are fleeing violence from Central America. We're working in all of those all of those areas. And in addition to emergencies, we also spend a lot of our time, as you might expect, as an organization called Save the Children, making sure that no child uh, dies from something that's preventable. So we, we also spend a lot of our time with moms and newborns to make sure that they particularly survive that really difficult first couple of days or first month. So those are some of the things that we're we're up to and some of the things that we focus on. But uh, it has been a really tough summer, uh, I have to say, in terms of kids. I think we share uh, that sentiment completely. And I'd like to, uh, if we could, uh, you referenced the humanitarian crisis that has uh, impacted us right here at home, the recent arrival on our borders of thousands of children fleeing strife and violence in Central America. And it seems the crisis uh, did a lot to uh, stir the immigration debate, but didn't negate the harsh realities these children were facing at home or what needed to be done for them as they arrived in this country. I understand you recently spent some time at the border assisting in the assessment and placement um, of these children, uh, some of whom I think were sent back to their home country, many of whom have found placement here while they await immigration hearings. Could you give us a bit of an update on this crisis? Um, tell us about the condition of the children and maybe a little more uh, for our listeners, a little more specifics about what your organization is doing in this crisis. Sure. I was down in Texas and was looking at the uh, programs that Save the Children already had up and running in Texas. And, you know, I think there's a couple things in this crisis that I would I would focus on. The first one is that uh, the vast majority of these kids are fleeing some really horrible circumstances in their home country of Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala. And, you know, I sat with one little boy who was 12 and told me, you know, about getting beaten up on a very regular basis every couple of weeks from older boys who wanted him to join a gang, the extortion of his family to pay money to these gangs, you know, the drug trafficking in these countries. Uh, We've done a great job as a country to help in places like Colombia really shut down the drug trade, but it's shifted to many of these Central American countries. And um, the violence that's happening and that these kids are fleeing is really, really horrendous. You know, many of these kids are coming on their own and are being sent by their parents because the conditions in their countries are so bad. And frankly, I don't think as a country we are doing enough uh, to take care of these children once they do come to our borders. We have been able to visit the detention centers in Texas and New Mexico. And, you know, frankly, the conditions there for children are not what we all would like to, to see. Granted, the numbers are very, very large, and our Customs and Border Patrol folks are not 
you know, it is not their job to take care of thousands of children, but um, we have been trying to do more in the detention centers and not have not been able to, and that's been really frustrating. Uh, but the work that we are doing um, in these transition centers where kids go after they've been through the detention process continues to go on in Texas and providing kids there with making sure that they're getting a lot of these kids left without anything. So they're getting clothing, they're getting food, they're getting, you know, some hygiene supplies and those kinds of things, able to take a hot shower. Those are really important. But, you know, we have to do a better job at the border. And we also have to make sure that these children get uh, due process because they are in many, many circumstances, they're fleeing really horrendous conditions in their country and they need their stories need to be heard. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's a heartfelt story. And, and as a father of a 12 year old, uh, even yep. more so. And uh, we know that uh, as parents, we would go to no end uh, to make sure our children are out of harm's way. And I think that's uh, probably the uh, the, the attitude that the, the parents who are sending their kids uh, north uh, have in mind. Absolutely. Uh, and as you said, there's no shortage of uh, woes in the world uh, that are impacting children and certainly uh, uh, none uh, less than the, the war that's been going on between Hamas and, and Israel and Gaza. And you recently warned that unless there's a massive intervention on, or rebuilding uh, the destroyed infrastructure in Gaza, including hospitals and schools and municipal services like water and sanitation, that even bigger humanitarian crisis is looming. Uh, In the midst of the conflict, how to save the children, help rebuild infrastructure, and what uh, innovative approaches can be utilized to better address the rebuilding of the infrastructure in Gaza and elsewhere? I was actually in Gaza before uh, fighting broke out, just about two weeks before, actually. And it's a very difficult place in the best of circumstances. It's very crowded. The infrastructure is it was not great in terms of hospitals and health facilities for children particularly. Now much of that is destroyed. So there is going to have to be a big you know, fundraising process and a big building process, rebuilding process in Gaza. And, um, you know, things like safe drinking water, really, really important for Mm -hmm. children, obviously getting kids back into school, um, particularly after such a horrendous emergency, that's always really, really important. And uh, Save the Children has been working in Gaza for about 30 years. So we have lots of experience there, and we're, we'll certainly be engaged in rebuilding there. And, you know, we have been pushing for the ceasefire to, mm-hmm. you know, to continue because obviously that war has killed many, many children, mm-hmm. and, and that's something that has saved the children. We we have to stand up and say something about, so we have been doing that. I'm sorry the list is so long of places uh, that <laughs> I know, are it's really— been a, like I said, a it's tough a summer tough for summer. kids. Yep, and we've, we've said often uh, uh, collectively here that— uh, we almost can't remember a time when there were so many uh, yeah. enormously hot spots around the country. Certainly, Iraq and Syria are on our minds, where some yeah. million and a half residents have fled their homes in the wake of the most recent campaign uh, by the group ISIS, as well as in fleeing Syria's civil war. The problem's obviously much larger than any one organization mm-hmm. could address adequately. Maybe you could uh, share with us how how is Save the Children partnering with other organizations to address these crises? And how do you coordinate all of these entities that are attempting and wanting to help 
refugees in need. Yes, I think um, one thing to point out about Syria and the conflict there, about half of those 1.5 million refugees are children under the age of 18. So it is, it is really a huge crisis for kids. And Save the Children is working inside Syria, and then we're working in the five uh, surrounding countries, so Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Iraq, uh, Egypt, and Turkey. And in all of those places, we work together with both UN agencies. So in a place like Jordan, for example, there's a very large refugee camp there. There's about 90,000 refugees there. UNHCR runs the camp. Save the Children provides food uh, every day to the 90,000 inhabitants of that camp. We work on preschool for the younger kids, so there's something for them to do. UNICEF works on elementary school programs. So there's a huge amount of partnership uh, because this is a, it's a huge crisis. We've never seen a refugee crisis like the scale and scope of what's happening in Syria before. But our work is really about making sure that kids and families have places to go and they're getting the basics of a place to sleep, access to school for kids, which again, we're three and a half years into this crisis in Syria. So you can't have children out of school mm-hmm. for three and a half years or they'll probably never go back. We're speaking today with uh, Carolyn Miles, President and Chief Executive Officer of Save the Children, an independent nonprofit international organization meeting the needs of over 143 million children in 120 countries, including the U.S. And Carolyn, the U.S. is also an area of focus for Save the Children. You recently released a report on Americans' readiness to respond to another disaster uh, on these shores. It's been nine years since uh, Hurricane uh, Katrina, and yet that 75% of those American parents with school-aged children polled felt that we as a nation are still ill-equipped to handle such an event. So tell us about the findings of uh, the Save the Children 2014 disaster report entitled, uh, What Are You Waiting For? And what distresses you most about the results? And uh, what recommendations are you making to address our uh, disaster preparedness issues? What we found in the report, so this is the seventh year, I believe, that we've done the report. Report. And there was both good news and bad news. We look at these four critical factors in terms of keeping kids safe in school and childcare environments. And the good news is that when we started doing these reports, uh, this report, there were four states that met these four criteria. There are now 29 states that meet the criteria, but there are still 21 that don't. You know, every day, 69 million children in the United States leave their parents and go to either school or childcare, it's really important that those facilities are prepared for emergencies. And so um, the U.S. is, I think, third on the list of countries as the most disaster-prone countries Mm -hmm. in the world. So all sorts of natural disasters, and we really have to do a better job at making sure that we're keeping our kids safe. How are you continuing to promote the access to the basic uh, essentials and health services in these countries that grapple with other disasters that gives children a healthy start despite these crises that keep rolling over on top of them? I think Ebola is actually, sadly, the perfect example of what happens when you have very weak health systems. Mm-hmm. So Save the Children does spend a lot of time trying to make those health systems better. And a big intervention that we do around the world is we train community health workers. Mm-hmm. Most of the places where we work and the people that we serve 
A lot of our work focuses on training community health workers. They just usually have a basic education, but they can diagnose pneumonia, for example, which is a huge killer of children all around the world. They can provide uh, oral rehydration salts to dehydrated children from diarrhea, again, a huge killer of children. They can help moms make a plan for their delivery, and we do spend a, a lot of our time trying to shore up the health systems in these poor countries. You know, we've talked to a lot of, uh, of uh, leaders around the world, and uh, certainly the role looms large for community health workers, and, and uh, it's good to see that you're leading the way on that. You know, sort of going into the internal workings of an organization, they don't run on just goodwill. Uh, the budget uh, since you've been on has tripled to $700 million a year. Uh, 90% of the funds uh, raised for Save the Children go to uh, fund actual programs uh, such a significant uh, portion uh, of the dollars that you raise. Tell us about the funding model uh, mm-hmm. and how it how you sustain it and uh, maybe sort of what the projection for the need is. Yes, we, we do put a lot of focus on accountability and a lot of focus on measuring where those dollars go and how, and more importantly, how effective they were in terms of the programs that we do. So we do measure all of our programs in terms of you know, key indicators, whatever that project is about and what we're trying to do, whether it's get kids into school and make sure that they learn and pass through the fifth grade or whether it's, you know, train more health workers and and get them into service in communities. So a lot of time is spent on the tracking of those programs to make sure that we, not only that the dollars are being well spent, but that we are learning on what works the best. And we're learning also where things are not working mm-hmm. and being able to make them better. So um, our funding mix is actually one of the things that I think is really terrific about Save the Children is that we have a philosophy that anyone who cares about kids uh, can get involved in the organization and certainly can figure out a way to you know, help fund the organization. And so we have donors from a $10 donor or kids that bring in their piggy banks to, you know, an individual who gives us $10 million. So it's a very diverse funding base. We get about 30% of our funding through the U.S. government, through USAID, and then about 70% of it is from corporations, foundations, individuals, and everything, as I said, from a $10 donation to a $10 million donation. A lot of our, our partners, like the Gates Foundation, for example, pick a particular area that they really are passionate and want to work mm-hmm. on. And with Save the Children, that area with Gates is, is newborn survival. Mm-hmm. And so we've been working with them for 10 years. And we are, you know, in that for the long term and are really trying to drive down the numbers of kids that die in that first month, which is the biggest mm-hmm. part of kids that die under the age of five. So, so I would say, you know, our funding model is quite diverse. We spend a lot of time fundraising um, because the needs, frankly, are always – far outstrip the resources that you have. So I certainly spend time fundraising and we have a group of people that that's, that's really what their job is all about. And um, I, as again, what I think is great about Save the Children is that there's a, a place for everybody to help in our organization. Carolyn, you blogged earlier this year about your meetings with the Clinton Global Foundation at the United Nations. And you suggested that there was still too much talk about what needs to be done to address the global needs of children. And maybe there ought to be more shouting about the need to confront preventable causes of death and disease in children around the globe. 
We're in September now, another convening of the U.N. General Assembly underway, probably more talks. What are the policy initiatives that you are uh, advocating most strongly for? Well, we are going to try to do some more shouting in September, certainly. And I think there's a couple of things on our agenda. Um, one is Syria, which we talked about earlier, which I think is typically with these kind of very long, drawn-out civil, you know, war type of situations like Syria, people do tend to forget and they tend to think there really isn't anything that we can do anymore about Syria. And so we will certainly be talking about what's happening to kids in Syria and reminding people that there are things that we can do, both for people that are still inside Syria and also for the refugees that are outside. And whether that's, you know, providing school or continuing to make sure that these families, you know, have a roof over their head, they're still there, they still need help. And so we'll be certainly pushing uh, on Syria and trying to get people to remember about Syria. The other piece I also mentioned was on newborns. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the, uh, I think, most successful things that the world has done is around child survival. And if you look at the number of Mm -hmm. kids that die every year of things that we can prevent, that number has almost gone down by 50% since 1990. And that's quite a dramatic drop. But Again, newborns are still the biggest part of that that number, and there's still 6.6 million kids every year that die of things we can prevent. And in many countries, that that 50% of that number is is kids in that first month of life. So what can we do around newborns? We've been pushing with uh, various countries to put together something called a Every Newborn Action Plan. Mm -hmm. So they actually have put together a plan in uh, Ethiopia that says, here's the things we have to do for newborns in our country, and here's what the Ministry of Health is committing to do. And so almost every country now, certainly the ones that are critical in terms of child survival, have put together those plans, and now it's time to actually you know, do the work. And so we'll be spending time at the UN General Assembly when the leaders of these countries are are in town to uh, to really push that piece as well. So those are just two of the things we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks. We've been speaking today with Carolyn Miles, President and Chief Executive Officer of Save the Children, independent nonprofit international organization meeting the needs of over 143 million children in 120 countries, including the United States. You can learn more about their work by going to savethechildren.org. You can follow her on her blog, Logging Miles, and on Twitter at Carolyn Save. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations. Thank you both so much. I really enjoyed being with you. Thanks. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, in the run-up to the November midterm elections, we're seeing Republicans claiming that their Republican primary opponents support the Affordable Care Act, but the claims use out-of-context quotes and exaggerations. In Georgia, in a contentious House race, Republicans Bob Johnson and Buddy Carter are both opposed to the Affordable Care Act and have called for its repeal. But you wouldn't know that from their competing ads. Johnson's ad claims that Carter said Obamacare was, quote, not so bad. That's a cherry-picked quote. Carter said that, quote, some of the things that have happened so far are not so bad. 
but he immediately added that, quote, the worst part is yet to come. Johnson's campaign website further claims that Carter left the door open to Obamacare's Medicaid expansion in Georgia, and it highlights part of an op-ed Carter had written. But that, too, was out of context. Carter was explaining the views of others who favored the Medicaid expansion, saying he disagrees with them. A Carter ad, meanwhile, says that Johnson has, quote, membership in and endorsement from groups that support Obamacare. The ad doesn't say this, but it's referring to Johnson's membership in the American Medical Association, which has generally been supportive of the Affordable Care Act. Johnson is a surgeon. But Johnson, like Carter, has called for repeal of the law. As the AMA president said in an interview on C-SPAN this summer, some members of the AMA support the health care law and some do not. The Carter campaign cites other medical groups that support Johnson, but those associations don't change the fact that Johnson has been opposed to the health care law. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. The flu doesn't just exact a toll on public health. It packs a meaningful punch on the economy every year as well. Comprehensive vaccination programs have had an impact on curtailing flu outbreaks, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. In 2011, an estimated 100 million workdays and close to $7 billion in lost wages were attributed to the flu largely because many employees without paid sick leave are more inclined to work while sick. An estimated 80% of those who come down with flu-like symptoms ignore doctor's orders and go to work, leading to more widespread co-infections. In a first-of-its-kind study, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health decided to analyze the impact on flu outbreaks in the workplace and to ask what would the difference be if there were universal access to paid sick leave. Lead researcher Dr. Supriya Kumar says their study showed a pretty dramatic link between access to paid sick leave and a reduction in flu outbreak in the workplace. They also created another option. What if there were a new sick leave category focusing just on flu days? Their model showed that if those workers specifically diagnosed with flu were guaranteed just one paid day off to recuperate, there'd be a 25% reduction in the spread of flu. And when workers were guaranteed two paid days off, the numbers went up to a 40% reduction in co-infection. A universal paid leave program for all workers that has the potential to greatly reduce flu co-infection in the workplace, positively impacting both public health while saving billions of dollars in the overall economy? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcasts from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.